You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Hugo Ernsbach was an eccentric magazine publisher and an inventor, probably most famous for being known as the father of science fiction, which was at the time a new literary genre that he really pioneered and promoted. But he was also famous for some of his bizarre inventions. For example, in 1925, Hugo invented something he called the isolator. Um, There's the isolator. So... Despite what it looks like, it, it was not a device intended for deep-sea diving, but Gernsback marketed this as the world's very first, quote, anti-distraction helmet. Um, and in the July 1925 edition of his magazine, Science and Invention, he wrote about why he developed the, the isolator and why you all need to go out and buy one. And here's what he says in the magazine. Here's a quote. Gernsback says, quote, perhaps the most difficult thing that a human being is called upon is to stay focused on their priorities and spend their time wisely. Can I get an amen? Most people who desire to concentrate, most, I think it's probably all of us, find it necessary to shut themselves up in an almost soundproof room in order to go ahead with their work. But even here, there are many things that distract their attention. Suppose you're sitting in your study or your workroom ready for the task. Even if the window is shut, street noises filter through and distract your attention. Someone slams a door in the house and at once your trend of thought is disturbed. Uh, A telephone bell or a doorbell rings somewhere, which is sufficient in nearly all cases to stop the flow of thought. But even if supreme quiet reigns, check this out, you are your own disturber, (laughs) practically 50% of the time. You will lean back in your chair and begin to study the pattern of the wallpaper, or you will see a fly crawl along the wall or a window curtain begin to move back and forth, all of which is often sufficient to turn your mind away from the immediate task to be performed. The writer repeats that the greatest difficulty that the human mind has to contend with is lack of concentration mainly due to other influence, influences that demand our what? Attention. Attention. So, Gerns back, notices the problem, develops a solution. He creates the isolator, the world's first anti-distraction helmet. The helmet was completely soundproof, it's like the original noise-canceling headphones. Love my noise-canceling headphones. Holy cow. Sometimes, truth, my kids don't even know they're not even on. I just put them in just to... Because I can't hear anything else. So um, also like totally designed to limit your vision. So here's a close-up that we see on the screen here. Notice the two uh, black eyes, the, the, the glass windows for the eyes, completely painted black. And then two white lines are scratched into the paint, and that's all you could see through, those two little white lines. So it kind of functions like blinders on a horse. It's designed to keep you focused on what's right in front of you that you're supposed to be focused on, whatever matters most, and to keep you from getting distracted and drifting off course. Now, again, let's come back to the why. Let's come back to Gernsback's vision for why he developed this. He, he, he creates the isolator because he notices a problem. 
And the problem, he says, is the greatest problem we have as human beings is staying focused on what we should be focused on and, and not getting distracted by the, by the barrage of things that are threatening to steal our time and our attention away from us. And Gernsback said that in 1925. Now, as forward-thinking as Gernsback was for his time, I don't think he had any kind of mental framework or any, any, any possible, there's no way he could have conceived or imagined the kind of digital revolution we've experienced. And with it, the level of noise and the, the barrage of distractions that we face today. We live in what economists are calling the attention economy, attention economy, or what many are now calling the distraction economy, where there are literally thousands of apps and devices that are intentionally designed to steal and sell your attention. You realize that, by the way, like billions of dollars are being made off of us. The product is no longer whatever is being sold to us. The product is you and me. The product is your attention. That's what's being stolen and sold. And in his provocative Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, raise your hand if you've seen The Social Dilemma. If you haven't, that's homework for you, okay? Um, Jeff Orlowski interviews several of the former tech designers and the big wigs and executives from Facebook, Google, Twitter, YouTube, and others who have left the industry and are now blowing the whistle that the products that they were creating are literally intentionally engineered to nurture addiction. Um, in a recent interview, Bill Maher who's never had any problem speaking his mind, uh, compared all the big tech companies of Silicon Valley to drug dealers. Here's a direct quote. He says, quote, Apple, Google, Facebook, they're essentially drug dealers. The tycoons of social media have to stop pretending that they're friendly nerd gods building a better world and admit they're just tobacco farmers in T-shirts selling an addictive product to children. Because let's face it, checking your likes is the new smoking. It, referring to your smartphone, wants all your what? Attention. All the what? Time. It's not a service. It's Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction. There is something being crushed out there, but it ain't candy. Philip Morris, who, uh, if those of you who don't know, was the leading cigarette manufacturer in the world for more than 40 years. Philip Morris just wanted your lungs. The app store wants your soul. You know what's interesting about this to me? Bill Maher's not even a follower of Jesus, and yet even he's worried about your soul and mine. He's worried about the long-term effects all this constant distraction is having upon us at a core soul level, and he's not the only one. Um, a few years ago, Andrew Sullivan wrote an essay, also not a conservative guy, wrote an essay in New York Magazine called I Used to Be a Human Being. Everybody should read it. And he wrote about his own digital addiction, which he referred to as a phrase he coined called distraction sickness. And in the, in the article, here's what he says. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have any. Notice this. Now he moves, he starts talking to churches now. If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today 
is not hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure, but it's distraction. Perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. Bill Maher says the constant distraction is destroying our souls. Andrew Sullivan agrees and adds to it that it's destroying our faith. Interesting. Former theoretical physicist Michael Goldhaber adds to that that this is destroying our most valuable asset, which is our time. He defined the Internet as, quote, a system that revolves primarily around paying, receiving, and seeking what is most intrinsically limited and not replaceable by anything else, namely the time and the attention of other human beings. All of this brings us to a really important question, and it's a conversation that we've been having for about four or five years now as a church. Let me show, let me tell you where I feel a little vulnerable, is I feel like familiarity breeds contempt, and I'm always the guy that ends up talking about this kind of stuff for whatever reason, as if I'm like, I, I do not have this figured out. I just want you to know, everything I'm about to say, I stink at it, and I struggle with it on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. And I was telling Chuck this morning, who's one of our pastors, um, I'm concerned that people are going to tune this out because we've heard this before. And Chuck so wisely said, well, I'm not really concerned if we've heard it before. I'm concerned whether or not we're doing it. Because hearing and doing are two different things. Um, and God wants us to be not just hearers of his word, but hearers and yeah, doers of it, right? So I, I'm concerned with whether or not we're living this, um, what I'm about to say, okay? And I want, I want to be real clear about this. As one of your pastors, all, I represent all of our pastors. Um, I, I am pro like human ingenuity and the advances we've made in digital technology. I love it. I love my iPhone and the conveniences of it. Um, I love online streaming services. I love Spotify. Holy cow, I love it. I lo- Amen, preach, love it. Um, I love a good like... Stupid videos of people getting hurt on YouTube sesh. I mean, I love it, guys. I'm telling you, I'm just a normal dude, just like any, anybody else in this room. Love it. Um, I, I like social media sometimes even. You know, I mean, even even that's okay for me from time to time. So listen, what I want you to hear me say, because it would be real easy to walk away from this of like, I'm one of the old school preachers that says like all dancing's bad and all drinking's bad and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying all digital technology's bad. I'm saying it's inherently good. Listen to me. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? It's all good. It's good. It's, it's got, human ingenuity is a good thing. God gave it to us. The technology is good. It can be used for good. But there's one thing I know about myself and I know about other human beings. I've been kind of doing the human being thing for about 40 years now. Um, here's what I've learned. All of our codependencies, our addictions, our idols, almost all of them are good things, that become ultimate things that end up hijacking and controlling our lives. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in the digital era, in the digital age. I would argue people are sociologists, Christian historians are saying this right now. We don't live under like deadly opposition yet in the United States. It's harder to follow Jesus here than it has been anywhere. Like it's easier to follow him in places where you're going to get beheaded for it. I'm not wishing for that. I'm just saying that's the, that's the fact. It's honestly harder to stay alive and stay awake and follow Jesus in this culture than it ever has been in any other culture, in any other part of any other place in the world. That brings up a really important question. Okay? How do we, as disciples of Jesus in this cultural moment, 
not sell our souls to the digital economy? How do we not lose our faith and forfeit our time, which is kind of all we have? How do we instead become resilient disciples and stay focused? Is there a practice from the life of Jesus that works better than the isolator that helps us stay focused on Jesus and the life that he has called us to? Yes, there is. And it's called the practice of simplicity. And what I want to talk about this morning is specifically the practice of simplicity of time. Simplicity when it comes to how you spend your time in your life, which is very precious. And I'm telling you, it's very short. And that's what Paul wants us to see this morning. You guys with me? Okay, let's go to Galatians chapter 5. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5. And let's, let's jump in. This is a short text, but there's a lot here. Here's what Paul says. Verse 15 and 16 of Ephesians 5. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Right now, here's what I want to do. I want to point out four things that Paul wants us to see about what we do with our attention and our time. Four things. Really simple. First off, if you're taking notes, is this. Notice that what you give your attention to is a core discipleship issue for Paul. There it is on the screen. What you give your attention to, where you place your attention, really, really matters in your discipleship to Jesus. When Paul says, be very careful... That's one Greek word that more literally translated is pay careful attention. Paul is trying to get your attention. Right away, I want you to notice he cares deeply about what you give your attention to. And in this case, he wants his voice to cut through all the distractions. And he's demanding that you give him your attention. Paul is after he's aiming at your attention. Hey, everybody, pay careful attention. Listen to what I'm about to say. That's 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 first thing I want you to see. Paul's after your attention, and so is Jesus. Where you give your attention is a core discipleship issue. Number two, notice in in this passage in Ephesians 5 that living wisely, according to Paul, is to a great degree a matter of how we spend our time. Verse 16, he says this, Don't live as an unwise person, but live as a wise person. How? How do you live as a wise person? By making the most of every opportunity. I actually prefer the ESV translation here, which reads, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the what? Time. Listen, pay very careful attention, as Paul says, to what I'm about to say. According to Paul and the way of Jesus, the difference between a fool and a wise person hinges on how you spend your time. It's not about how much you know. It's not about how much you do necessarily. It hinges on how you spend your time. It's right here in the text. Whether you are making the best use of it or you are getting distracted on less important things and you are wasting it. Eugene Peterson and his paraphrase the message. I love love the message. Here's how he paraphrases verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. Quote, Don't waste your time. That's what Paul's saying here. On useless work, mere busy work, the barren pursuits of darkness. Expose those things for the sham they are. Listen to this. It's a scandal when people waste their lives. Amen? It's a scandal when people waste their lives. When Paul says make the most, make the best use of your time, he's saying don't waste your life. And he's calling us to a life of wisdom. Number three, 
Third thing Paul wants us to see. Your time is the most precious commodity that you have been given to steward. The most valuable asset. I don't, I don't give a rip what you have in the bank account. And neither does Jesus. I don't care what you got in the retirement. I don't care what kind of inheritance you're coming into. Your time is the most valuable asset you have been given to steward. Paul uses this phrase, verse 16, look at that phrase, making the most or making the best use. It's actually one word in Greek, and it's literally the word to redeem. I like the way King Jimmy gets at it in, in the King James Version. Here's what, here's what Big Jim says. Pay attention to how you live, not as fools, but as wise by redeeming the time. Do you know redeem is a financial term? We think of it as like a big spiritual term. God redeems us. That's just a financial word that, that the biblical authors come along and grab to talk about how Jesus has purchased us with his blood. He paid for us with his life. He bought us. He spent his life to buy or redeem us. So when he says redeem the time, he's saying he's talking about how you spend it. It's a financial term. He's getting at the value of it. How do you buy your time? How do you spend your time? That's how we talk about it, right? Time is something you spend. And he's picking up on this idea that runs throughout the Bible that this is the most precious resource we have been given to steward. It goes back to what Michael Goldhaber said. This is the most intrinsically limited and not replaceable thing that we have. And so when Paul says redeem it, there's this sense of urgency because Paul understands that, look, not only is this precious, but it's extremely limited. Did you know, I mean, I'm surely you do, but we're, we're sort of, a, I'm, I live my life asleep to this a lot. But we're all living on a fixed income of time. It's a zero-sum game. You got, set, you got 24 hours a day. You got seven days a week. That's 168 hours a week. And life is short. And, and our days are numbered. And none of us knows how much time we have. Um, J- James, the brother of Jesus, he said it like this in James chapter 4, verse 14. He's just, he's just pondering, okay? What is your life? Let's think about it for a second. Let's think about it with him. What is my life? Isn't it just a mist that appears for a little time and then poof, vanishes? And you, it's like a puff of smoke. And you see this all over the Bible. There it is again on the screen, Psalm 102.3, just for one more example. What are my days? My days pass away like smoke. Imagine the smell of the campfire. We're sitting around a campfire together, and you're watching the smoke roll off. of That, the, that wood is screaming and, and like steaming, and you're watching the smoke roll off of it. It's just like, and it's gone, right? Poof. This is your life. And then it's over. Uh, Seneca was a, a Roman philosopher who lived around the time of Jesus. And he had a little bit of a different take on this. He said, well, actually, in one sense, life is short. But actually, it, it's, life is long if you know how to use it. I love this quote from Seneca. We'll put it on the screen. He says, it's not that we have a short time to live. It's that we waste a lot of it. Life is long if you know how to use it. People are frugal in guarding their personal property, but as soon as it comes to squandering time, they are most wasteful 
of the one thing which it is right to be stingy. I might replace the word stingy with like, it's right to be wise, okay? But, but his point is simple. We need to guard and protect our time, right? We, we need to set boundaries around our time that keep us from getting distracted because how you spend your time matters. In fact, the Bible would, would argue that how you spend your time now matters for all eternity. Do you believe that? Like, by the way, you know, you know, you can't save time. That's actually like a misnomer. You can't save time. You can only spend it. And once you spend it, you can't buy it back. And how you spend it now matters forever. Um, t- to give you another quote, I-, I-, I like reading about Henry David Thoreau as kind of the original minimalist. And Thoreau has this great line where he says, you can't kill time without injuring eternity. Bro. That's massive. You can't kill time without injuring eternity. What you do now, how you spend your time now, has eternal implications. So don't be a fool and waste it, but pay attention and steward it wisely. That's Paul's point. And this is all the more important to make the best use of your time because as Paul goes on to say, quote, the days are evil, end quote. This brings us to the fourth thing that Paul wants us to say. I said there's four things I want to point out about how you, how you spend your time, what you give your attention to. Here's the fourth one. Paul wants us to see this. There is a real enemy and world system out there that are competing for your attention and your affection and trying to steal it and pull it away from God. To give you the cultural backdrop of this letter, Paul's writing this letter to a group of Christians in Ephesus, which at the time... Um, it's a culture that's radically out of step with the way of Jesus. Radically. This was the political, financial, entertainment, uh, culture, capital in, in the ancient world. And so it's a very consumeristic culture. It's obsessed with power, image, money, entertainment, pleasure. So if you're a disciple of Jesus trying to walk and, and swim in these waters, it's really easy to get distracted. And to have your attention diverted and your effect, the affections of your heart hijacked by all the flashing lights of Ephesus. And all the siren calls of pleasure. And the easy access to entertainment. And all the endless opportunities to escape in Ephesus. And if you haven't already made the connection, that wasn't just a problem for them. But like that's kind of the same boat that we're like in right now in this cultural moment. In our culture. Except, as I said a moment ago, I might argue it's worse now. I, I, I might argue that it's worse and it's even harder to follow Jesus in the here and now than it would have been in ancient Ephesus. And that's because advances in technology, especially digital technology, have given the enemy and his team more tools at their disposal to drive distraction and addiction. Did you hear what I just said? The enemy has more tools now at his disposal to drive distraction and addiction than he had in Ephesus. Seth Haynes is by far my favorite writer. BJ, you like Seth Haynes. By far my favorite. He's also an Arkansan who lives in the Ozarks. Seth Haynes, in his his book, The Book of Waking Up, uh, says it like this. Now, this is a lengthy quote, but I want you to get on the edge of your seat, and I want you to hang on to every word, okay? Here's what he says. The powers, and he's talking about the spiritual dark powers, Satan and his demons. The powers are ever at work. And in this modern economy, they have more tools at their disposal. In the modern era, 
The powers can put us on an endless dopamine-fueled roller coaster, the kind of roller coaster that didn't exist in eras past. They couldn't have even conceived of this in Ephesus. Hungry? Reach for a box of cookies, (laughs) a box you chose from among dozens at the store. Take, eat. Three minutes in, you've consumed a day's worth of calories for someone living in the 18th century. Are your jeans a little threadbare? Jump on the internet. Visit The Gap, Banana Republic, Everlane. Options, options, options. So many mind-blowing options. An hour later, you've narrowed it down to three pair and you buy them all. Check out with the credit card information stored on your computer. It's convenient. What would have taken half-day outing just 30 years ago was all done from the well-worn divot in your favorite living room chair. Feeling that itch? You know the one. Click and scroll, click and scroll. Ten bodies. Hundreds of bodies. Endless options of bodies. All these options birthed by technology. How is it even possible? The powers know their game. And they, enta- they attach a line straight to the reward center of our brains, give us a pump button to push anytime we feel the call of desire. Asleep as we are to the powers at work, numbed as we are by the whiz-bang of pleasures, we don't pull the line out. Over time, we begin pushing the button to numb again and again in an attempt to satisfy deeper desires. Meanwhile, the chemical hooks sink in more deeply. The powers want nothing more than to steal our hard-earned cash, kill our willpower, and destroy our connection with God by using the stuff of earth fueled by modern technology as a, hello, distraction to keep us alienated from God. Deep breath, deep breath. Let me just ask you a question. Am I the only person in the room that feels the weight of that? Okay. Um, that, That makes me less lonely. To be clear, once again, modern technology is not the devil. But the devil's in the details on this stuff. To be really clear again, human ingenuity and creativity and technology, really, really good. But the devil's in the business of taking really, really good things, distorting them and using them to distract us and steal our attention and our affection away from God. And let me tell you something right now. Listen, the devil has hit the jackpot with our advances in digital technology. The flipping jackpot. He's hit the jackpot. With digital technology. As Seth Haynes mentioned, for the first time ever, we have choice overload to distract us. More choices and options now at our fingertips than ever before. Information overload to distract us. We have more information coming at us. Uh, more information in a single edition of the New York Times than someone in the 17th century would have consumed in their lifetime. That's bananas. Um, Herbert Simon, he coined the phrase attention economy. He has this line where he says a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Oh my gosh, does anybody else feel this? As a pastor and kind of like a spiritual, I'm supposed to be a 
spiritual leader and making disciples in this culture, I feel the temptation to listen to every podcast, read every book, listen to every sermon, like read every commentary. Like it's all so much information and a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Media overload to distract us. It would take you four years to watch everything that's on Netflix. And that's just one streaming platform. Work overload to distract us. Nowadays, used to you would go to an office or you clock in, clock out. Some of, some of you still do that. But the, but the problem is you also take the office with you in a smartphone right here, this little tyrant, this boss that you carry in your pocket that's always like notifying you about stuff. And so there's this constant pressure to like squeeze in some text or compulsively check my email and work bleeds into the margins and it's easy to get distracted and obsessed with work easier now than it's ever been because of technology. Shopping overload, entertainment overload, escape overload. You want to escape? Endless options. Snapchat, TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. I don't even know. I'm not Gen Z, okay? I have no idea what, what, all, what all this stuff is. Um, but actually I do because I deleted TikTok off my phone yesterday. So it's like I can't, because I, I'm not mature enough to handle it, guys. I'm just not. I'm just going to tell you right now I'm not. I can't do it. So um, anxiety overload because all this stuff is demanding our attention all the time. It's a nonstop barrage of push notifications, text and emails and apps that call out to us, these siren calls. I wonder, what if we were that in tune with the Holy Spirit? Like, what if we were that in tune where we, like, felt all the push notifications? Adam, I want you to, hey, Adam, there's a person I want you to notice. Adam, I want you to pray for that person. Adam, I'm bringing this person to mind because I want you to text them a word of encouragement. Adam, I want you to say this to your wife. Adam, I want you to repent to your children because you were harsh with them earlier. You want to know what drowns out the voice of God in your life? All the other stuff that we give our time and attention to. So Paul says, pay attention. Be very careful how you live, how you spend your time. Don't be a fool. Make the best use of your time because beneath the big technological powers of Silicon Valley, there are darker, more evil, more sinister powers that want to kill you. I'm not a crazy spiritual kook, guys. That's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. The days are evil. The days are evil. You fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, and he's just hours away from his death. And there's this scene where he's praying praying in John 17. And there's this statement he makes. Now, his life is coming to a close, so he's, he's seeing things really clearly, right? And there's this statement he makes to his father with so much clarity and conviction that just floors me. I'll put it on the screen. Here's what he says. He's at the end of his life, and he says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus lives his life with such laser focus and such intense clarity and of, of focus of like, focused on his identity as God's beloved son, focused on living out of his core communion with his father, focused on what what God the Father has put in his heart to do, that he lives his life in such a way that when he gets to the end, he's able to look back and say with integrity that 
I want that so badly to be true for me. Where I look back at the end of my life and I'm able to say, man, I spent my time in such a way that I glorified you on earth and I did the work that you put in my heart to do. You read the Gospels and, you know, Jesus, he was not like he wasn't busy. He had thousands of things and people like competing for his time and his attention and his affection. And yet in the middle of it all, he was fiercely present to the stuff that matters most, the people that matters most, the people God had placed in his life and what God had called him to do. Like he was, he was fiercely present and he made his life count because he spent his time wisely. Now, here's the question I, w- I want to invite you to consider. And it's a question I've been wrestling with all week. And it's not a fun question, but, it's, but God is so generous and, and gracious that you can step into the question with no shame. Here's the question. How many of us are going to be able to say with that kind of clarity and confidence when we get to the end of our lives, I glorified you on earth and I did what you told me to do. I, I lived my life in such a way that I, I did what you called me to do. How many of us are going to be able to say that with that kind of confidence when we get to the end? I can tell you this, whether or not we're going to be able to say that in the end depends on what we give our time and attention to in the now. To quote the the journalist uh, Oliver Berkman, what will your life have been in the end but the sum total of everything you spent it focusing on? Jesus' life in the end was the sum total of everything he spent it focusing on. That's what allowed him to say that. He focused on the right stuff. All this brings us back to our original question. Here we go. Okay, In a non-stop, 24-7 digital age, how do we stay focused on Jesus? We know the isolator doesn't work. By the way, did you know there's a Hungarian company that's re- inventing the isolator it's i'm serious it's bizarre google it it's bizarre we're we're just desperately trying to find a way to stay focused nowadays like desperately nothing works (laughs) all the self-help books on focus noise canceling headphones it doesn't matter so like how how in this day and age do we stay focused on jesus and not lose sight of our god-given identity and calling how do we stay awake and spend our lives wisely? How do we make our lives count for all eternity? Well, the answer is that we have to follow Jesus in adopting this practice of simplicity and specifically simplicity of time. Put another way, let me say it like this. We have to master the art like Jesus of saying yes to the right things and saying no to everything that tries to distract us and throw us off course of that. So let me say a brief word on each and we're done. This brings us into our practice for the week. Let's talk first about how to say no. You know, um, there's so many things. This is a pattern that we see in Jesus' life of saying no. There is so many things that, that great things we talk about that Jesus did, but we don't ever talk about the great things that he didn't do. The, the, the good things that he said no to. Look, um, Jesus did not heal every sick person he encountered. He did not raise every dead person. He did not feed all the hungry beggars. He did not meet every expectation that was put on him. And there were a lot of expectations put on him. Would you be our military king and overthrow the Roman government? Mm-mm. No, that's not why I've came. That's a distraction. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Like all kinds of expectations. Will you settle this dispute between me and my brother? We're having a little fight here. Which one of us? Get, I'm, not, I'm not playing that game. 
I'm not doing that. Mm-mm. Will you tell my brother to give me my inheritance that he owes me? Mm-mm. Jesus said, I'm not getting in the middle of that. Mm-mm. No. Isn't that crazy? He said no all the time so that he could say yes to the stuff that really matters. So as his disciples, like we're called to follow him and adopt his lifestyle and his way of being, which means as his disciples, we have to master the art of saying no. Y'all with me? All right. So let me real quick give you some practical guidelines on when and how to say no. This is not necessarily all coming from the Bible, but I'll tell you this, it's all true. And if it's true, it came from God. And so um, it's wisdom that I think Jesus would totally agree with, and this gets us into our practice for the week on the no part. So guideline number one for learning how to say no. We'll put it on the screen here if you're taking notes. Don't get sucked into the tyranny of the not urgent, not important. If you're going to stay focused, this is huge. Former President Dwight D. Eisenhower once said, what is important is seldom urgent, and what is urgent is seldom important. And so to help him stay focused and make decisions to spend his time well, he came up with his famous Eisenhower decision matrix. We can put it on the screen. It's got four quadrants to it. Let me just briefly unpack each one. Um, God, uh, quadrant number one are things that are both urgent and important. These are things that need to get... A lot of times they need to get first claim on your time um, and get and get really good use of your time. These are things that need your immediate attention that you should say yes to. These are like emergencies, certain crises, sometimes deadlines, certain problems like um, you know your car breaks down, you got a sick child, you got a relational problem. The Bible says don't let the sun go down on that. So you got some tension in your in, in there with your spouse. Turn the ball game off, put TikTok down and have a conversation. Like this is like a, this fits into quadrant one. Okay. This is an immediate, urgent, important. This needs your time and attention. Quadrant number two are things that are not always urgent, but they're always important. And I'm going to tell you right now, the goal is to spend the most and the best of your time in Q2. This is investing in relationships, spending time with God your spouse, your family, your friends. This is self-care and self-development, doing the spiritual disciplines, taking responsibility for your own spiritual formation, planning your week and your days. Uh, I try to plan my week out on Sunday afternoons. It, it never, it's not bulletproof, but I'm just trying to like, how, can, how do I spend my time wisely and intentionally so that I can do the best I can to guard against like my time getting hijacked? Unfortunately, however, Q2 is usually the things that we neglect because of Q3, which are things that demand your immediate attention. In other words, they're urgent, but they're not important for you. Maybe they're important for other people, but they're not important for you. You know, a lot of the requests that come at you all day, it's really important to that person maybe, but it doesn't have to always be important to you. That's okay. I'm just going to tell you right now that's okay. Not everybody's emergency has to be your emergency. If it is, that's the definition of codependency. So Q3 is like all this stuff, like again, push notifications, text, demands, all seems really, 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 really urgent. And if you give your, if you, if you give your life to it, you end up reacting and not living. And then whatever's most important, you don't get to. Like your child discipling your kids or, like, I mean, your vocation or whatever that might be, like, you, that's the stuff that's going to, that's going to get on the chopping blocks because we spend too much time in Q3. And then finally, you have Q4, which are things that are not urgent and not important. These are time wasters, um, TV, social media, games, 
A healthy goal, by the way, is to spend 5% of your waking hours in Q4, 5% of your waking hours in Q4, which comes out to roughly about 42 minutes a day. So thankfully, that's just enough time to watch two episodes of The Office and read a psalm and then go to bed for me, right? So, um, so that's, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the goal with Q4. I think we can all agree. Let me come back again. I'm going to, I keep making these disclaimers because I, want you not, I don't want you to not hear what I'm not saying. Q4 is not an area that we have to condemn. You don't have to condemn Candy Crush or whatever. Like, bro, like I'm not saying that. I, I'd give anything to have a Nintendo 64. I'd stay up all night. I promise you. Um, we're not saying you have to condemn Q4. I am saying that we probably can all agree that this is an area we need to say no to more often. Can we at least agree that's probably true for most of us? If, that is, your goal is to pay careful attention how you live, not as a fool but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I would keep this Eisenhower matrix in front of you. Look at it once in a while. Check it weekly. Evaluate yourself. Ask the Spirit of God, where is He calling you to repent and make some adjustments, make some changes? Two more things real quickly on the no side, then we'll say a couple things on the yes side and we're almost finished. If you're going to master the art of saying no, the second kind of guiding principle is you're going to have to care more about God's approval than man's approval. Easy, right? Um, That quote that you see there on the screen, that's from Paul in Galatians 1. Look at what he says. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? I'll tell you what, if I was still trying to please people, I wouldn't be serving Jesus. Because <laughs> I'll tell you something, serving Jesus and pleasing people uh, don't go together. They don't go together. If you're going to serve Jesus, you're going to have to say no to some people. That's going to be really hard for a lot of you. Because you want to be nice and you want to be helpful and you're codependent just like me. So, But, but if you want to serve Jesus, you're going to have to say no to some people. Um, I want to say this right now. There's an intense emotional pressure to say yes to every request. And I want you to hear me. We are called to love and serve one another, right? And be generous with our time. But listen, loving and serving someone and pleasing someone are two different things. And the hard truth is that you can't please everyone and you will disappoint some people. You can't respond to every text message. You can't respond to every email. You can't say yes to everyone. You can't meet everyone's expectations. And Jesus didn't even come close to trying to do that. And as his followers, as his disciples, we were to mimic and adopt and take on his yoke and learn from him and follow his way of being human, which means we do the same thing. Okay? Y'all with me? Last thing here on the say, say no. We have to realize every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. I said this a couple of weeks ago so I can be short here. But the reality is nobody in this room has a problem saying no. Even if you hate saying no, you have to realize that every yes inherently contains a no. For example, if, if I say yes to an early morning breakfast, I say no to my morning workout. If I say yes to a late night evening commitment, I say no to spending time and hanging out with my wife. The truth is nobody has a problem saying no. We're all saying no all the time every time we say yes. So the question is, what are you saying yes to and what are you saying no to and are your priorities in order? And that brings us to the yes side of things, okay? A couple of words on this. Um, it's not enough just to know how to say no if we're going to spend our time wisely. 
the next step that is even more important is knowing your priorities and the right things to say yes to, like Jesus. So I'm going to suggest three guiding questions if you want to know what you need to say yes to. Question number one, before God, who or what am I responsible for? How do I want to be remembered as two? And three, what is the next right step God's inviting me to take? A brief word on each of those. Okay, question number one, spend some intentional time alone. This is your practice for the week. Get alone, ask the Spirit to help you answer this question. Before God, who or what am I responsible for? And whatever the Spirit reveals, those are the people and the things that matter most to you. Write it down. The idea here, as Greg McAllen says, is if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. Okay? So you got to do it, or somebody else is going to do it for you with all their requests and all their stuff that they want to put on you. Um, if, if you need help thinking about your priorities, here's some categories. On the le- uh, we'll put up two columns here. On the left, some traditional categories. This is what you're responsible for, your relationship with God, self, spouse, children, church, friends, career. I actually really like that list on the right, which is a list from, these are Michael Hyatt's categories in no particular order. You want to know what you're responsible for? Sleep needs to be a priority in your life because your body has limits. Eat is a category, also a priority. You know what takes time to eat well? That's why fast food is not as good for you. Not to mention the fact that food and the table is designed to foster intimacy and connection and community. So fast food kills relationships, which is like the lifeblood of your soul. Um, so like Michael Hyatt says, you need to make eating a category that you're responsible for. And you need to spend time into eating well. Again, I love a good like cravings menu at Taco Bell. Love it. So I'm not condemning all of it. I'm just saying we got to think about how we're spending our time here. Move. Exercise. Make it a goal to sweat every day. Connect. This is invest in your most important relationships. God, spouse, kids, friends, missional community, DNA. Play. Find a hobby. Give yourself the freedom to be inefficient. Reflect. This, spend, spend time in silence and solitude, meditation and prayer, reading and journaling. Unplug. This is Hyatt's way of saying, practice the Sabbath, guys. Practice the Sabbath. Take 24 hours to get completely offline. Don't even think about work. Rest and enjoy God's goodness. Before God, who or what am I responsible for? I promise you it's going to fall somewhere in those categories. Okay? Second question, how do I want to be remembered? Put another way, what do I want people to say about me when I'm dead? And to answer the question, you fast forward to the end of your life and you look back. And I promise you this, I've sat with people as they're dying, okay? Nobody on their deathbed wishes they had worked more or spent more time on TikTok. Nobody. It is always all about relationships, right? That, put, it, put it on a coffee mug or something. It's always all about relationships. Investing in the people that God has bound to you in your life. Jared and I sat with a, an older pastor um, from uh, Long Beach not too long ago, a couple of years ago, and he asked us to look at our schedules. He looked at our schedules and how we spend our time And then he began to offer us some fatherly criticism, some discipline, some love. And he said, I want want you guys to 
fast forward to the end of your life and I want you to look back and I want you to put yourself in a hospital room and you're dying. So maybe this is a helpful exercise for you. Can you imagine? Put yourself in a hospital bed and you're dying. And he said, in that moment, the people that will be standing around you, reading psalms over you, praying over you, singing you into glory, won't be a single person that probably you ever did life with in a missional community. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not saying anything about the value of anything. I'm just, just, just being honest with you. It probably won't be anybody you ever sat in a counseling room with. It probably won't be anybody that you know ever liked or didn't like something you put on Facebook. It'll be your wife. It'll be your children. It'll be their spouses. If you're a really blessed man, it'll be your grandchildren. And it might be a friend, maybe. And he looked at my schedule and then he said, I would love to have a conversation with your wife about how she thinks you're spending your time. And I was broken, totally broken. God, forgive me, help me. Because I say yes to a lot of things that are good. Good, man, good things. But I say yes to too many things. Last question. What is the next right step God is inviting you to take? What is it? Maybe for you it's delete Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, I don't know. Maybe it's setting a boundary of when and how much time you spend on social media. Maybe it's repenting and apologizing to your spouse and kids for not being present. Maybe it's scheduling a date with your spouse, a date with your child. Maybe it's aiming for sitting down at least three times a week at the table to eat. Maybe it's going to bed earlier. Maybe it's finding an exercise routine that works for you. Maybe it's connecting with a friend. Maybe it's carving out consistent time for silence and solitude. I, I don't. I, only you can answer the question. I, I want to invite you to sit with that question even now and sit with that question this week and ask the Spirit to help you. What is the next right step God is inviting me to take? And whatever surfaces, write it down and thank Jesus for showing you and ask for his help. To close, that's the key. We need Jesus to do this right. Um, we need his grace. We need his help so as not to get distracted and waste our lives. I've given you a lot of quotes. Let me give you one more. In the uh, fourth century, when Basil the Great, he was the, the bishop of Carthage, when he left the city life to go live in a monastery, he famously said this. He was interviewed about life in the monastery. He said, well, I, I indeed left my life in the big city, like the busy life in the city, but I've not yet found a way to leave myself behind. And he goes on to say, we, we all carry our indwelling disorders about within us. And so we are nowhere free from the same sort of disturbances. This is the reason why the isolator ultimately failed to work. I want, you, I want you guys to know it's, it's right for us to talk about how we're being shaped by our culture and what digital technology is doing to us every time we use it. But let me listen to me. We can't blame those things. We have to realize that we are the problem. I'm the, Adam's the problem with my life. Like we have to realize that beneath our people pleasing, our addiction to distraction and all our codependency, there is a deeper problem within us. There is an inner pain that we are trying to numb and escape that only Jesus can heal. 
There is an inner void within us that we are trying to fill that only Jesus can fill. There is an inner ache and hunger and thirst that we are trying to quench that only Jesus can satisfy. And so the key to staying focused for the long game and to, to transformation is every time you find yourself like, uh, you know, getting another hit on social media or, or like over attached to this or that, like every time oh, to your phone or compulsively checking email or saying yes to too many things, whatever, like every time you find yourself doing this stuff, don't shame yourself. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Notice what you're doing. Notice the fruit. Trace it down into the root and pay attention to what's going on inside of you and realize there's an ache in there somewhere. If you sit with it for just a second, you'll find it. There's an ache. There's a pain. There's a hole. There's something missing. And, and, and remember that, that that's a place where only Jesus can meet you. And if you invite him into that place, he will meet you every time with the purest of pure grace and compassion. Like, we have to remember in the gospel that there is forgiveness for all of our unhealthy, dysfunctional attachments. Praise God. There's forgiveness for all of our unhealthy, sinful coping mechanisms. All of our time-wasting stuff, there's forgiveness for all of that. And there's healing for the pain that we all carry on the inside from life in a fallen world. This is how we learn to stay awake. This is how we learn to pay attention and stay focused. We keep coming back to Jesus time and time again, and we learn what it is to, to, to center our lives around him. And every week we come to, come to this table of communion, and that's essentially what we're doing. We're remembering in this moment, oh yeah, this is where my attention belongs. Uh, my fixation belongs upon Jesus and his love for me. And to prove it, he's not all talk. He actually demonstrated it. To prove his love, his body was broken and his blood was shed. He gave his life to pay the price for our sins to redeem us, to redeem the time, to redeem your life and give it back to you. And if you're in this room and you're a follower of Christ, like this meal is for you, we invite you to, to take it, eat, drink, be merry, celebrate what Jesus has done for you. If, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. It's a safe place for you to question, journey, um, walk at your pace. We're happy to walk with you and meet you where you are. We don't have very many closed doors to you, but communion would be one of them. Because this meal is for those who put their, it's a symbol of hope, of where your hope lies. And if your hope is not in Jesus, this meal is, is not a reminder of, of that for you. And so our encouragement would be rather than take this meal, take Jesus, take him at his word, embrace him as, as, as the good news that you've been longing for, the salve for all your deepest wounds. I'm going to invite the band to come forward and, and I just want to invite you to close your eyes and let's just, man, let's just meditate on, um, on what we've just heard. Let's just sit with it for a moment. Maybe that, that last question of, what is, what is the next step that God is inviting you to take? Maybe that's the question you sit with for just a moment. <coughs> Father, I, I just ask that um, you would, in this moment, um, break, break through any walls that are keeping us from seeing clearly and hearing you directly. I just pray that you would make the gospel so explosively alive in us. 
I pray that even in our city, we would be known as a church of people who are just so laser-focused on the good news of who we are in Christ, the hope we have in Christ, the life we are called to in Christ. And I pray that that would, that would shape how we live, it would shape how we relate, it would, it would work, it would shape everything. God, I, I, I pray for myself and for all of us just that as we drift through life, you would constantly bring us back to a place of where we're, we're not drifting, we're awake. Like, wake up, O sleeper, Paul says later in Ephesians 6. I just pray that you would wake us up and, and keep us attached to Jesus. Whenever we reach for other things, I know I do daily. When I try to attach and, and connect with other things to be for me what only you can be for me, I just pray that you would gently lead me back to a place of trusting in you. Help me to learn to live there. Help us to learn to live there. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.